It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm Neil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest today is Helena Norberg-Hodge, a pioneer of the new economy movement. She is author of the inspirational classic Ancient Futures and producer of the award-winning documentary The Economics of Happiness. The impact of the global market on food and farming has been a focus of Helena's work for almost 40 years. Helena offers a refreshingly different perspective on the current state of the global food economy and the path we need to take to bring about lasting change. She shares how her experience in Ladakh, India, located in the Tibetan Plateau, influenced her worldview and her work. We discuss how the modern economy that favors global trade is a root cause of most of the challenges facing the world, and in the case of food, it has led to the most inefficient, wasteful, and environmentally destructive system. Helena talks about the conflict between the global economic system, built on monocultures, and the Earth's ecosystem, which thrives on diversity. She traces the history of global trade, which was built on the theft of land anti-nature values, racism, misogyny, slavery, and genocide, and explains how this has now evolved into our modern food system, which she describes as a combination of a global financial casino and a techno-corporate mania that is out of touch with the real world. Helena challenges the entire system, including new trends like regenerative agriculture and alternative proteins, which she believes are still functioning in accordance with the rules of the flawed operating system that runs the destructive global food economy. Helena offers an alternative that is inspired by indigenous cultures and is rooted in developing local, human-centered, community-oriented, diverse food systems. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation. Helena Norberg-Hosh, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Very happy to be here. So Helena, 2020 brought the global food system into clear focus for a lot of people. It showed us that the dangers of prioritizing efficiency and scale and global trade eventually leads to breakdowns in supply chains. Um, And it showed us that we've prioritized certain things like efficiency at the cost of resiliency. And you've been talking about this for years. So I wanted to have you on, especially because I was hoping we can provide a different perspective on our conventional or dominant framing of uh, what is happening in the global food economy right now. So maybe we can start there. How would you describe the problem with the global food economy today? Well, for one thing, you touched on it when you talked about how we prioritized efficiency over resilience. Well, actually, we haven't. What we've allowed is global traders to impose what is efficient 
for their extractive wealth creation. So from the point of view of a global trading corporation, it's very efficient to reduce diversity, in fact, destroy it, um, to level the playing field, to make it possible for them to go searching for cheap labor across the world, to transport food across the world, to be processed, to fly fish from America to China, to be deboned, to fly but you know, potatoes from Sweden to be washed and put in plastic bags on another side of the world. This is going on and we're calling that efficient because we are actually using the language that's being imposed on us by giant corporations that are extracting profit. When I say that, I also just immediately want to point out, I don't think that those people inside those corporations are some kind of evil, you know, conspirators, you know, sitting in a dark room planning to confuse us or destroy the planet. But I think what's happened is that the modern economy from the outset was based on favoring global trade and the global traders have benefited and they become drivers of a system where a continued addiction to and support for global trade is really the root cause of most of our crises. And when it comes to the food economy, as I say, it has led to the most inefficient, wasteful, polluting system imaginable. Uh, maybe I could just add that not mm -hmm. only is food being flown across the world just to be processed and flown back again, and I can give you lots of examples, shrimp from England to Thailand. Uh, you know, these are just things that we happen to land on because it's hard to get a hold of the statistics. We find that right here where I am in Australia, the macadamia nuts are flown to China to be cracked open and flown back again. Now, at the same time, countries are routinely importing and exporting the same product. So the US exports about a billion and a half tons of beef turns around and imports about a billion and a half tons of beef. UK exports as much milk and butter as it imports. This, I, you know, I had my eyes open to this when I saw a traditional ancient indigenous culture on the Tibetan plateau that had been sealed off from the modern economy and where people were self-reliant, there was no hunger, and then when it was thrown open to the outside world, I saw things like butter that had been transported for a week across the Himalayas, coming into the local marketplace, costing half the price of butter from the farm, you know, a minute's walk away from the marketplace. And that opened my eyes on this research, and I've seen around the planet that foods, that foods that have been transported for thousands of miles cost less than local food. As a general rule, or wherever you go, Mongolia, New York, Nairobi, you'll find that pattern. Why? Yeah, and I mean, I, I think there's so much um, that you mentioned there that, that really leads me to wonder how is it that we even uh, got to this point? And really, it, it seems like, and I think the point that you mentioned that's worth re repeating is that it works efficiently and it works well for those that stand to benefit from it the most. And that is generally a pretty small group of people. What ends up happening, though, in the process is we're sitting now here in, in 2021 a lot of conversations around the food economy and the global food system tend to center around the issue of climate change or food waste or factory farming or pointing to these specific problems and potential solutions to address those problems without necessarily, I find, addressing the foundations on which the entire system itself is built. So, you know, what they end up becoming merely are band-aids that leave us sort of still trapped within this globalized, monopolistic, uh, multinational food system, which then leads to monocultures and eventually leads to not fixing any of our problems with climate change or food waste. So how do we kind of fall out of this trap that 
I think a lot of well-meaning people within the good food movement seem to be stuck in that we just need to replace, you know, a certain product or change or add a certain technology somewhere in the supply chain, and perhaps we're going to change the entire system. And all, matter of fact, is we're not going to really do much. Well, I think first of all, the the way to get out of this is for all of us to devote more time, more resources, more money into the education process of providing holistic, clear, systemic analysis. And I think, uh, you know, there is in academia, there is a lot of talk about systems and so on. But the one thing that people are not looking at is the conflict between the global economic system and Gaia and her ecosystems. So this absolute head-on conflict between an economic system that's imposing monoculture on the world and the living real economy and our home and mother, you know, Gaia, the earth, the fundamental principle of that earth of ours of life is diversity. Diversity to the extent that every plant, every earthworm, every butterfly, every human is unique and changing. So not only do we have this infinite diversity, but we have this remarkable complexity and richness of those diverse entities going down to the tiniest microorganism changing moment by moment. Now that living rich diversity is being systematically eradicated. We know that species are going extinct as we speak. Mm -hmm. There is a growing awareness that the loss of languages and cultures, local cultures is linked to that extinction of species. So we're also talking about the imposition of a human consumer monoculture on the entire world. And we need, we just need to step back and look at that and say, now, how did this come about? How is it that at every level, from the grassroots to the top CEOs, essentially no one is stepping back to look at the system? So that's also why we can say there is really no one to blame. Mm. And it's quite helpful. I, I do feel very empowered by the fact that I don't feel anger towards any individual entity or individual corporation or government in this. Because when you look at the truth of it, this has a historical trajectory that, yes, it did start with global traders who were white men in Europe who did have overtly racist, misogynist, and anti-nature values. The rise of this system had been, you know, predicated on the idea of torturing nature for her secret. It actually had involved burning women at the stake for their witch knowledge, which was knowledge about local herbs and healing, and but which threatened the Christian church. Anyway, so yes, it started with these values that were pretty hideous. But what happened is that those traders who then you know, proceeded to enslave people, genocide, killing people off, and enclosing people in Europe. In other words, through regulations, the elites pushed people off the land into Dickensian London. Mm -hmm. And there, everything was a mess. You know, there was just, there were no social structures in place. They didn't have any ways of dealing with waste. It became a toxic in term, environmental terms, toxic, polluted, the fires, etc., and the social mess, the poverty, the crime. So that, unfortunately, is where we start our history lessons. You know, we say, look at that horrible mess, and haven't we made progress through growth, through technology, through development? No, we need to actually step back and look at the predecessors to that. We need to look at the smaller towns and even the villages where people have developed social mechanisms, interdependent structures to manage their land, to manage their relationships, to engage in trade and production for their needs. They also traded globally, 
but they traded in things that were not basic human needs, everyday needs, like food. The food that you needed for every day came from the region. Now that is efficient. Mm. That is the food security that we should all be supporting. As we move forward, we must make a U-turn to make it a priority for groups around the world to be able to provide the basic foodstuffs for their needs as the number one priority. Now, as it happens, if we do support that local food economy worldwide, we are also massively reducing emissions, massively reducing, and not just the carbon emissions, but the emissions from refrigeration, from the toxic um, chemicals that have to be used on vast monocultures. Because when you localize, you are diversifying. You have diversity on the land. You're working with a natural way of things and you do not need those chemicals that came about because of creating vast monocultures. That's, you know, I think the point you raised there about looking to nature to to guide us on how we, we solve some of our current challenges is a good starting point. Um, I think often when people are even trying to uh, articulate what problem they're trying to address uh, when it comes to the current Western global economic model around food, uh, most people aren't even talking about the same thing. So it depends on who you ask the the theories for by which they explain the causes of our problems today, they're all different. And I also think the underlying values that guide their choices on what would be the right solutions tend to be different. So, you know, first and foremost, some people are trying to address the challenge of climate change. Others are claiming they're trying to address the inequities, uh, the social justice issues involved with uh, food distribution and, and, and lack of access to food in some parts of the world or some parts of even the U.S. for that matter, while others are talking about um, what's happening with our, with our soil or our oceans. And everyone comes at it from their own unique perspectives and then views the problem through their own lens, asks questions that basically confirm what they already believe, uh, and seeks answers that basically, again, fall within their existing ways of looking at the world. And, and I think that's what's led us to such reductionist thinking, uh, where the only solutions we can come up with are, you know, perhaps we need to, you know, divert some of our food waste, or we need to maybe perhaps put pressure on consumers to choose differently, when in fact, no one's actually, again, as I said earlier, addressing the root of the problem. So I do like your lead in about looking at nature and the diversity of nature. Um, and that eventually leads us to this place where you can't help but look at local, regional food systems and see how beautifully they worked in the past. But I, I guess to play a devil's advocate, I'm sure you get a lot of criticism around uh, your focus on local. And it's probably, you know, at a, at a simplistic level, it's probably people hear that and go, this sounds like some anti-capitalistic, socialist idolism, um, can't really happen anymore. Or, or in some cases, they probably think of this as being a very romantic, nostalgic view of the world and that we've gone too far away from that to come back to it. And I think partly that's why you even some of the local you know, efforts you see tend to be very much driven towards uh, meeting the needs of uh, a certain affluent consumer base, again, leaving out those that perhaps need the most help and that perhaps can actually be not just participants, but leaders within this movement. So I'll just ad let you address some of the pushback you tend to get because I'm sure you've gotten it over decades now um, on why local is a model that we can work with in the mon modern world that we live in today. Yeah, I think first of all, that again, I want to stress the importance of, of sort of what I call big picture activism, mm -hmm. which is that we need to Please, I mean, even any listener who's at all interested in what I'm saying, please keep in mind that very few people have any idea 
that food is being flown across the world to be processed, longer and longer distances. I first discovered this in 1977 when I came back to my native country of Sweden, and I realized that at that point, potatoes were being sent by road to Italy to be washed, put in plastic bags, and sent back again. Already in the 70s, that seemed insane. What a waste of fuel, pollution. We were already beginning to be concerned about climate change. Why was that happening? Mm -hmm. It was happening because governments had bowed down to the notion that more global trade is to how we grow our economy. What they were actually growing was wealth for global corporations. And this is happening in socialist governments and in uh, more capitalist. So it's not actually an issue to do with left or right. It's an issue to do with life and an artificial system. It's an issue now really to do with survival, but it's also an issue to do with well-being. It's to do with health. It's to do with happiness. So I, I just hope that people would be willing to research this a little bit more, to open their eyes to the fact that it is insane for anyone to call it efficient mm -hmm. to engage in this type of transport on a polluted planet where we have the specter and the concern about climate change, but also pollution of other kinds. It's how can anyone justify this, what we call insane trade? But the problem is that most people don't know about it. They don't hear about it, even from the Greenpeace, the Friends of the Earth organizations that are focused on climate change. Instead, the focus is on the individual you individual, you're very naughty, you human being, you are just greedy by nature. Why are you still driving your car? Why do you still want to go on holiday in an airplane? Shame on you. Now the dominant narrative is saying human beings are so greedy and selfish that they absolutely refuse to listen to information. They haven't heard enough about climate change and it's just not sinking in all the information we've given them they're still behaving in this selfish greedy way the same dominant narrative that comes out of a mix of a financial casino a high-tech um, distant techno sort of mania this combination of a financial casino and the giant high-tech companies that are completely out of touch with the real world, not looking on the ground, not seeing how we're destroying our soil through creating these monocultures, not seeing this transport. They come up with ideas that are now essentially telling us that these humans who are so greedy and selfish are going to be replaced by robots. <laughs> there is a romanticization of robots now. The even, you know, well-intentioned environmentalists saying, well, maybe they'll make a better job of it. Even arguing that robots are hopefully going to be kinder than humans. Now, I can only say that these sentiments, these ideas are only possible when you approach the world through a conceptual left brain lens. They really aren't possible if you're in touch with the human um, efforts on the ground, if you, like I, every day, I receive information and evidence of human beings struggling against all the odds to create a better relationship with nature, to create a better relationship with others. I'm in touch with these countless grassroots attempts to go against the tide of big money and big tech to build something that is more human scale, that is more caring for nature and for people. I'm in touch with projects where prisoners are allowed to grow food, learn how to grow food, and guided and helped to be part of a community conversation, to sit in a human scale circle and actually talk to each other about what they care about to open their hearts, to be vulnerable, to be human. Now, I've heard 
you know, I'm thinking of particularly one hardened prisoner. I mean, he looked hardened. He said, I've been in and out of prison my whole life. In my whole life, I had never been talking to people who cared about what I felt, what I thought. We are not aware of how a dominant economic system that started with racism and genocide and misogyny has escalated into a techno-economic system that is so far removed from life, from people and what they care about, from the animals, how they how they live, what they need, from the plants, from the soil, from the flows of water that can nurture and, and feed us and feed our souls. So I, I just, yeah, I would argue that <laughs> stepping back and looking at the big picture and looking more closely at the ground, at the grassroots, being in touch with those genuinely kind and caring and wise efforts of people around the world. It really helps also if people would look honestly at the reports, the earlier reports from indigenous cultures. It would really help if people could do a bit of research. Our website is a good place to start, localfutures.org. We are a treasure trove of everything to do with localization. We're pioneers of the movement, and it started with my experience in indigenous culture. So we have masses of writings and evidence from people, the early, the missionaries, the conquerors, who encountered indigenous cultures and reported, in many cases, described the people as the healthiest, happiest, kindest, most democratic people they had ever encountered. And by the way, many of those early reports were later changed when those white conquerors were trying to steal their land and they encountered violent opposition. But it's very interesting to read those early reports. That's one side of the equation. And I don't, you know, from my experience in indigenous culture, I can report that I, you know, and I, I lived and worked with people, spoke their language fluently, arrived at a point when they had just opened up to the outside world, they had not been colonized, they had not been developed through the modern economy. And I discovered the happiest, healthiest, most tolerant, most vital, most vibrant people I had ever encountered. I lived with them and spent half of every year for about 20 years and continue to work with them to try to resist the pressures of the dominant economy. Now, what I saw in that conflict between tradition and modernity created a very black and white contrast. It wasn't black and white in terms of any details. Nothing in the world is ever black or white. It's all dependent on context. It's all a question of degree. But a degree, don't forget, a degree in temperature is the difference between life and death. So degree differences in these two systems, on the one hand, a more localized system that people had developed themselves through a deep dialogue with their ecosystem, through learning about the particular climate, the particular plants, the particular... Uh, weather patterns, all of this meant that around the world we had cultural diversity because we have diverse Mm -hmm. ecosystems, diverse plants. Now, those systems that evolved in that way were systems that were able to sustain human life without destroying life itself. It's when the global traders started lifting people away from their place, from their local economy, and created this system that enriched global traders, but marginalized and destroyed local economies everywhere, Mm -hmm. that things started going so wrong. Now, in the modern world, what's happening is an intuitive opposition to that, even a conscious one. I do want to mention the, the most conscious of all is the biggest social movement in the world 
Via Campesina started. It's about 200 million small farmers who have tried to raise awareness about how global trade treaties that give global corporations more and more power are destroying farming, basically destroying farming and farmers. What they're imposing is agribusiness, vast monocultures, animal factories, the most hideous expression of this system. And it's not about whether you have animals on the farm or not. It's about whether a corporation that isn't even located in the same place as the farm, Mm -hmm. whether a financial casino that doesn't even see the animals is running the farm, or whether farmers on site, in place, localized, engage with the animals, usually as part of mixed farming, animals contribute, and, and they even contribute in terms of emotional well-being for, for the entire community when they're part of a healthy, diversified farm. I'd, I'd urge people to look at the biggest little farm to yeah. get a sense of what I'm talking about. It's an excellent film to show this. What the biggest little farm doesn't stress enough is that that farm is able to survive economically because it has a market relatively near to the farm. Mm-hmm. In other words, the key forward. So uh, I want to say that intuitively, people are building local food economies. Many people who do this have not studied the global food economy, but they can just see that it makes sense. They realize, of course, it's better not to transport food across the world, but to shorten the distances, to be concerned about food miles. We want to do that to reduce emissions. We want to reduce plastic. We want to reduce unnecessary refrigeration. And we want to help farmers diversify. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens, the opportunity to diversify when the market is not on the other side of the world from the farm, but as close as possible, as close as reasonable. So the local food movement is growing from big cities as the city through grassroots initiatives, mainly led by women, these grassroots initiatives from the big cities start connecting with the land around the city. Our national governments in pursuing global trade as the way to grow the economy are doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. They are using our taxes, our subsidies and regulations to make it more and more difficult to have access to local food and to create a dependence on food from further and further away. I'm so glad you brought that up about the uh, the incentives that that people have, and I'm glad you even mentioned biggest little farm because often the challenge for that model to work for most people um, is they don't get the funding to even do what what the farmers did in that uh, particular documentary. But it's an example of what can happen when they when you get the right amount of support and funding, and you have the right exactly. amount of. Land and and that's another you know we, we can go down the rabbit hole of another conversation about who get access who gets access to funding and the inequities in that current system as well, but it's amazing to see and I think you're so right. I live in New York City. I'm seeing it right here. There's efforts to to develop something new, um, and create something that can almost be an alternative to this this dominant system and it. You know, even when we say local, a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, have these sort of romantic notions of it or think it's it's these it's only about farmers markets. But I think there's a lot of people now working to challenge that model even and figure out how when we say local we can we're almost talking about regions. We're like to what extent can certain um collectives of, of, of farmers or uh, or growers or uh, food producers or processors find a way to feed their particular region in a much more human-centered way compared to this sort of uh, machine-driven uh, techno-optimism that, that we all seem to be fallen in a trap under. I mean, and in some cases, yes, you will have to import certain foods, but I think what you said in the beginning was so important is the fact that 
why would you import foods that you're exporting? It just makes no sense. I mean, it just defies common sense. So I truly appreciate those points. Yeah, I think partly it's the looking back and seeing a process and escalation and also stepping back to see the more holistic global nature of this. You've got to keep reminding ourselves that we are swimming inside a global economic system. So this is another piece of the puzzle is people tend to look too locally, too nationally. We need to open our eyes to the global situation because then the pattern becomes much clearer. Obviously, this import and export of food becomes clearer. When you don't see that, farmers are led to believe that there is some logic to the fact that, for instance, I remember working with farmers in England years ago, and, and they were saying, yes, yes, our milk is exported to Belgium, and we import milk from Europe because in Belgium they need the best milk for their chocolate. You know, when, it's, when you only have that one view of it, you can believe in all kinds of stories. When you see it happening as a general rule worldwide, you start realize there's something else at play here. You also... We also need to raise awareness about that as national governments have been deregulating, meaning freeing global corporations of any rules, they are imposing more and more rules, particularly on small businesses, but even national businesses. Any place-based business under the purview of the nation state is subject to all kinds of regulations. Now, we also know for a fact that very often big corporations, global corporations are lobbying national governments to do this regulation because they realize that they are, of course, destroying their competitors and they themselves have the freedom to go in and out of countries without being subject to any of these rules. So we have to remember this is also a trade in money. So the escalation, the concentration of wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer entities and, and individuals is completely linked to the system. Uh, you know, I know this sounds so big picture that some people <laughs> get a bit overwhelmed, but what I am so thrilled about is the number of people who say to me, they find it such a relief to step back mm -hmm. and look at that bigger picture and then to see so clearly that the social crisis of this absurd and obscene gap between rich and poor, which, by the way, is also emerging in Scandinavia, the, the trends in every country is in the, are in the same direction because of the same global system exerting the same pressure. Around the world, we don't have identical situations because of that reality of diverse cultures that emanated from their roots in place in the real economy, in the living world. So we have that diversity, but if you look at the trends, the pressure from above is exerting the same, and as I say, particularly this obscene escalation between uh, <clears throat> in the gap between rich and poor, the job insecurity, the fear, which then translates into vulnerability to fascist leadership, the uh, extinction of species, of course, uh, you know, the toxic environmental effects are, are also, a, you know, a pattern in every part of the world. But I also wanted to come back to the fact that you pointed out that local is actually regional. Mm -hmm. And I, I, um, I totally agree with that. And I'm always arguing for people, you know, not to be fundamentalists, that many initiatives to try to reverse these disastrous trends towards supporting the global food economy and to regain health and sustainability will best happen even sometimes by starting to support the national arena, you know, really big region. Or, and it might not even be national. It might be a region which transcends the boundaries between Norway and Sweden or France and Germany. The, the point is, if you can be part of an initiative that's going to be shortening the distances and not flying the food across the world to be processed, but allowing more of the processing at home and starting to shorten distances, we can see a movement in the direction where ultimately 
Well, you know, local, regional, it's never going to be an absolute. Mm -hmm. It's going to depend on that rich diversity of environments and cultures. So this is not about some absolute fundamentalist, you know, you must eat only from 50 kilometers mm -hmm. away. No, um, but it is about making those efforts. And I, I do want to say that I find farmers markets one of the best structures to start things rolling mm -hmm. but it's exciting to see things building on from that because we really need to have shops with roofs on them you know that can be there rain or storms and and as almost all towns had around Europe until supposedly cheap fossil fuels created this pressure to scale up and by the way, as the farms were amalgamated to become bigger and bigger, more and more people driven off the land, this was linked to urbanization. And I remember coming back from Ladakh, this part of Tibet where I had my eyes opened to Sweden, and, and you know, not only seeing those potatoes being sent to Italy to be washed, but seeing that people were sitting in high-rise cities alone, everything, the community and family had been reduced down to the nuclear family, and that doesn't work very well. So then you had more and more divorce, as we can see around the world. And so often, at that point in 77, in Stockholm, more than half of every dwelling, every apartment, every house, there was one person living alone. And there was depression, alcoholism, anxiety, and I remember, you know, giving talks in Sweden, trying to say that being cut off from life, from our community, from animals, from plants, that's what made us unhappy. And, and I'm so thrilled to see now books like Johan Hari, mm -hmm. um, Lost Connections, you know, someone who suffered from depression and discovered that it was the connections to others and to life that, that, you know, that's essentially, as we're cut off from those, that's the main cause of depression. And the main antidote is reconnection. So if I could also say that in our work, as we encourage the rebuilding of local or regional economies, we're talking about here, local actually, again, becomes very important because we're talking about rebuilding more human-scale mm. local relationships. So just like I said about that prisoner, he, this was part of a project in Devon, actually, near, near where we live, um, where, you know, it was all happening on a human scale. It was about a quarter of an acre of land and about... 20 prisoners who, who were able to come before, a few months before they were due to be released from prison to be trained in how to grow food and how to, you know, recover their humanity mm -hmm. through community building, you know, sitting in circle, talking to each other. Now that rebuilding of human scale, deep interdependence and connection is actually a healing modality that is occurring all across the world. It's particularly so in the Western world where we've been more cut off than in places like your native India where people still have more, not just more community, but more intergenerational community, which is fundamental to what it is to be human. It's how we evolved. But I'm thrilled to see this movement is often intuitive. It's often not based on clarity about how, you know, this is one of the most important things we can do, but it is happening. And when it's combined with getting our hands in the soil and actually being part of something that is so clearly productive, something that is producing the only thing that human beings need every day of their life food, and that production has been marginalized by the dominant system, by the dominant narrative, and relegated to a sort of side issue, farmers pressured to perform as they would if they were producing 
rubber balls in a factory. They're supposed to produce potatoes that are the same size and apples that are the same size to suit the machinery, to suit the monoculture-imposing machinery so that tons of food get burned because they don't fit that monoculture. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in the farmer's markets, that doesn't happen at all, by the way. But anyway, when we, when we start reconnecting people to that most important production of all, something that we evolved with, something that in most of our time on this planet, we were engaged with the harvesting, the gathering, the, the processing, and the cooking together and eating together. That food tra tradition which shapes and informs, you know, diverse cultures around the world, was central to our well-being and to a, a sense of meaning. So when people are reconnected with that now, in many healing modalities, when what's combined is this need to connect to other humans, but also to the soil, also to meaningful production, to do something where you see that it has a beneficial outcome, it's amazing what a win-win-win strategy this is and how it's helping torture victims, delinquent teenagers, how beneficial it is when it's brought into schools. Um, so, yeah, it's a deeply, if you want, spiritual, psychological, social, ecological benefit that is accompanied by economic sanity, <laughs> economic well-being, because more meaningful livelihoods are being created. And, and truly, all of this is part of reducing emissions that cause climate change, and, you know, the mountains of plastic. It's a true systemic win-win-win. Yeah. I think you're really right about that. I, I also have to, you know, point out that it seems like what you're saying is so much about having humans and culture influence the system that, that is our current global food economy, rather than the opposite, which has been the case for, or the inverse, which has been the case for for decades now. I mean, I can tell you from as I expressed to you before we started recording, and I, I, I grew up in, in Bombay, India. Uh, and I remember in the 80s and 90s, when I was a kid, that there was a lot of um, you know emphasis on the best products were the ones that were imported. And we couldn't wait for uh, McDonald's to come into the country. Um, and I, I moved to to New York in the early 2000s. And I remember a few years uh, before I left when McDonald's had first opened, people were lining across the block to get in to try this thing because it was what, what the world ate, right? Versus what we uh, supposed backward people ate in, ate in India. And so I just thought that was worth mentioning. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, I have such deep experience of this way that the global economy um, as a system makes people feel inferior and backward. You know, and I saw people in Ladakh who had the deepest self-esteem, the deepest confidence I had ever experienced anywhere. You know, it's made me conclude that all of us Westerners are neurotic by comparison. And that goes back to the fact that every mother had sort of 10 living caretakers or no one ever tired of carrying the baby, you know, 24-7 and so on. But, but to see those confident people made insecure and made to feel stupid and backward because they were still doing things in a traditional way, farming, working on the land, and for have the children in particular develop this deep sense of inferiority about that and to be led to believe that the only way to be respected and really to be loved, this is how the system intervenes at a deep psychological level by saying to the child, if you want that love and recognition that every human being needs, you need to be in the city. It's always urban as a westernized consumer. Now it's okay if you have dark skin. It didn't used to be. It had to be white. Now it's fine to be dark skinned. But you've got to belong to that urban consumer elite with those incredible fancy gadgets. So urbanization and the destruction of farming 
are completely linked to the global economy. And I just also wanted to address a point that often comes up, which is that, it, you know, we regularly have people say that how can you expect people to buy local food when it's more expensive? So again, I just want to stress that the only reason that local food generally around the world now is more expensive than food from the other side of the world is because our governments are using these key mechanisms to shape the economy, and that means to shape the pricing. And they are what they tax, what they subsidize, and what they regulate. So all of those mechanisms favor global business to the detriment of local, regional, and national. Because of that manipulation, we have this completely false economy. Please just think about it. How can it be that in Mongolia, we have 20 million milk producing animals and there's more dairy than you could ever want. In Ulaanbaatar, well, first of all, you can barely find Mongolian dairy, but dairy from Germany is cheaper. In Nairobi, butter from Holland is cheaper than Kenyan butter. In England, Butter from New Zealand costs often a third of local or British butter. You're, we're talking about an inversion mm -hmm. that has perverted the pricing. So it's a political choice. And unfortunately, well, maybe not unfortunately, fortunately, this goes beyond left and right politics. It's all about waking up, opening our eyes. It's about seeing the bigger picture. And then we can see that there's just this, you know, the solution is right under our nose. The solution meaning that to reduce toxic pollution, climate emissions, and poverty, and to create more job security, and to create more democracy, all of those can almost overnight not be solved completely, but alleviated by a turn around with those taxes, subsidies, and regulations to support a path towards localizing instead of globalizing. Even as a CEO of Exxon, you were threatened by the fact that you're living in a system that is speedily encouraging mergers. Everyone has to get bigger and bigger and faster and faster to survive. And so you had to merge with mobile. And then there was one CEO. So everybody's job is threatened by this escalating casino economy. We must work together to, to change the direction. And it doesn't mean overnight uh, some kind of elimination of large businesses or even of global trade. It just means starting to shift the support so we can move in a direction of health and genuine regeneration. I'd love your opinion on some of the recent trends that are dominating some of the discussions about how to shape the future of food. I'm just going to throw two of them, and I would love your quick reactions. One is regenerative agriculture as the solution to a lot of our problems with our food system. And the other is alternative proteins or plant-based meats as the answer to the horrors of our CAFOs or factory farm system. What are your thoughts on these two potential solutions? Yeah, I would say that both of them come from think tanks and corporate interests that do not want us to look at the more obvious solutions. So both of them are quite dangerous. And they're dangerous, again, because they're going to help to escalate the gap between rich and poor. They're going to take us in a direction that is just not where we want to go. And we just urgently need to turn around you know we've got to keep in mind that we're, we're talking about you know the instability the political instability we're talking about the ecological destruction we must wake up to more genuine deep systemic solutions and move in that direction regen obviously it's a wonderful word we must regenerate soil there are so many good people getting involved with that wonderful but it is creating an alibi so that Nestle calls itself regen. It does not question 
the escalation, the merging of becoming bigger and bigger linked to distant markets. As this insanity of global trade escalates, regen is not enough. We need to be talking specifically about, yes, of course, regenerate soil, diversify shortened distances. So scale, smaller scale, we need to support that. And small farms can only survive in more localized systems. Small farms employ more people. They're far more enjoyable to work on. And the more diversified they are, the more enjoyable. There's a whole young farmers movement that wants to do this. And it's, you know, I hate hearing, again, the dominant narrative keeps saying no one wants to farm. Mm. There are actually every day more people who want to farm. And many of them are, you know, wealthy people who've left their Silicon Valley jobs and and want to do nothing but farm and love it. So there is this micro trend. And so region, not enough. We need to be talking about scale. We need to talk about distance, diversification, systemic change. The plant-based meat is really dangerous. It's a... I've been hearing from my Brazilian colleague who's been studying this. It's genetically modified soybeans. It's devastating environmentally. It's also putting more profit into the hands of fewer and fewer. And and of course, we want to move away from eating so much meat and immediately ban animal factories. They should be banned from today till tomorrow in the name of COVID, if nothing else. We saw what happened in those animal factories in COVID. They should be banned. And, and they're, you know, they're immoral, they're toxic, and they're really unhealthy for humans and animals and the entire environment around. Again, it's about monocultures, the concentration. The methane from the cows is, as part of the small diversified systems, it has exactly the opposite effect, contributes to a carbon sink. So diversification, including animals, can help us increase productivity. So the, I want to say the most important message is that it's through diversifying in a way that we've never done before mm. because indigenous people didn't need to. They weren't living on a crowded planet. We are now in a very crowded planet. We've got to care for every acre of soil. We've got to nurture the soil and the water systems back to health. And the way to do that is through diversification and through people working on the land instead of machines. So as we move people out of the cities, not all of them, but to create a balance between city and country, and use more human eyes and hands per acre of land, we can restore and regenerate in a way that is genuine and real. The machinery can never, no matter what the robots, they will never be able to care in that deep, individualized, intelligent way that human beings can and are doing on the land. Um, we need to have models that show that whatever the size of land is, wherever it is, in Africa or the Middle East, if you diversify, if you have some trees and some fruit and vegetables and animals on a given plot of land, you will always be able to produce much more per unit of land than you can in monoculture. This message needs to be blasted across the world now. So it's this diversification that's key. And it's the human contact and connection with the land that is restoring and healing people. So let us allow smaller farms, villages, smaller towns, smaller cities to flourish once again. And let's keep in mind that what we could do now in terms of diversification, using certain technologies in the service of that and developing technologies that are genuinely in the service of this, we, it's it's amazing what we could do. I can show you farms, like a, a friend in Japan has a farm of five acres that is so diversified. All the things I described are there, even generating some biodiesel for his own little machinery. Biodiesel on that scale is fine as part of a diversified system. It's a disaster in the global economy. Uh, you know, Effluent from animals is necessary in smaller systems. 
as it becomes concentrated into animal factories, it's one of the most polluting, hideous things we can do. The concentration, the monoculture, is a disaster <laughs> for the living world. So diversity, 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 and of course this relates so profoundly also to respect for individual human beings. And what we find is as people come together at the local level and engage and interact human to human, the prejudice and these concepts that are the foundations of prejudice inevitably disappear. When you know someone and you know whether they are kind or hardworking or have a good sense of humor, the color of their skin is, becomes irrelevant. The external becomes irrelevant. The, the inner side of who we are as authentic human beings is what comes to the forefront. And this is what we all long for. We all long to be appreciated for who we are. The, the externalization, the competition leaves us empty, which is why most of the stars in this global system end up drug addicted. And like my friend Russell Brand, you know, come back from that and tell us, it's empty up there. It's empty. It, it almost destroyed me. You know, I'm coming back to that reconnection to life. And um, yeah, a lot more to say. <laughs> Sorry for going on. No, I appreciate that answer a lot. I mean, I, I do think you, you offer a voice of reason that really addresses some of the shortcomings of whatever these uh, new potentially world-changing solutions are. And we have to be uh, humble enough and practical enough to acknowledge those shortcomings. You can't replace one system that's that's destroying the land and is encouraging monocultures, which another one that does the same thing. We can't go from scale being the problem and the solution also being just scaling up. We've got to find somewhere in between. And maybe technology does play a role. And maybe it is more at the local or the regional level, as you said, is how do we unlock the potential of smaller farms and how do we enable farmers to directly sell using um, techniques and technology that can perhaps shorter that supply chain or the costs involved in in having to go to a to a, to a grocery store or, or to a farmer's market and finding some 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 new hybrid or synth synthesize some new solutions that bring the best of what we used to have with some of the best new ideas that we've learned because of all our technological advancements rather than instead just f looking at anything as a silver bullet. I appreciate that and I agree with it. I also appreciate your time today. My last question for you was really about how you foresee, what is your vision for the food system in 2050? But I think you kind of just laid it out, but I, I would still love for you to answer that question because a lot of people listening will say, but how can you feed 9.8 billion people in 2050 using this system? How can we change fast enough to avert a climate crisis and how can we actually get ourselves to a better place by 2050? Maybe if you could just sum it up, that would be perfect. To sum it up, to move from a path, which right now is about merging to become bigger and bigger, so small farms can't survive, even larger can't. They have to amalgamate to become bigger and bigger, just like those corporations have to. Getting bigger and bigger and transporting over longer and longer distances is more difficult than supporting a shift towards becoming smaller. Becoming smaller would require fewer resources, less capital would employ more people. And particularly when you start changing the mechanisms that control the money supply, you're talking about making it a lot easier to work with the real economy, with the natural world. As you, on a farm, start diversifying, as that film show, Biggest Little Farm, because you're working with nature, it becomes easier and easier. You can start almost from day one reducing your need for chemicals, for any external input. On the other hand, as you try to amalgamate and create even bigger monocultures, you're going against nature. So you have, you have to import more and more external, expensive, corporate-created chemicals, fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, etc. 
So shifting towards the local, towards the diversified, employing more people, using less technology, less energy, fewer chemicals is easier. So let's do it. Thank you, Helena. I appreciate the time today and thanks for all the work you're doing. Thank you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.